You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, and welcome to Sustainably Geeky. This is episode 38. I am Jennifer, and we are joined today by Jen. And our special guest is Brittany Belanger with, uh, excuse me, with Earth Hub. And she's going to be talking to us about sustainable development. So Brittany has been passionate about environmental issues and sustainability from a very young age. At 10 years old, she saw the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was at that moment she decided she wanted to be a civil engineer when she grew up. 17 years later, she has obtained her civil engineering technologist diploma from Algonquin College, becoming a certified engineering technologist, and is completing her civil engineering degree from the University of Ottawa. Brittany is a certified as a lead green associate. With graduation around the corner, she's looking forward to being a part of sustainable design and infrastructure in her future career. When she's not studying for school or working, she's researching and implementing ways to keep the world sustainable through Earth Hub. She's proud of the, that Earth Hub won Ottawa's Best Green Initiative in the 2021 Faces Magazine Awards. She believes that being part of the future generation of engineers can make a serious impact on creating sustainable planet for years to come. Creating Earth Hub is just the beginning. So welcome, Brittany. Thank you for joining us. I know you're a very busy person, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. We actually uh, found out about you from one of our listeners. So um, thank you for suggesting Brittany as a, as a guest. He apparently follows you up in Canada and um, has participated in some of your initiatives through Earth Hub. So I'm really excited to learn about what you've done with that group. Um, I guess let's just start by, you know, kind of telling us uh, a little bit more about yourself. I know you said, you know, you got into this because you saw the Golden Gate Bridge, but um, <laughs> what what kind of, you know, kept you interested in this field? Um, I guess when it came to environmental awareness, I just noticed a lot of my friends and family, they weren't very eco-friendly. And it was because of a level of awareness. So a lot of people didn't know how, I guess, was the main reason. So I had this knowledge and it just seemed like the right opportunity to share it. So that's how Eartha began. And I started this platform. And then I wanted to kind of correlate it with my engineering background. So um, eventually, yes, I do want to... Um, implement sustainable infrastructure, sustainable urban design, which we're talking about today. So that's how it all started and kind of stuck. That's great. Yeah, if you can make a career out of your passion, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's always a great thing. Um, so, so let's just jump right in and talk about what is sustainable urban design and why is it important? Okay, so um, firstly, I think it's important to know the definition of sustainability. Um, so it's the ability to exist constantly. And this kind of means that we're staying within our limits. We're not going over capacity. Um, in correlation with urban design, this is reducing our impacts on the environment, uh, things like the ecosystems, water resources, that kind of thing. Um, for why it's important though, the first thing I kind of want to mention is uh, asking ourselves, is it possible? So is sustainable urban design possible? And I want to shed some light on this because I feel like this is something not a lot of people would think about. I was reading an article actually earlier today 
um, by Lurton Blassingame, I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, the article is called Sustainable Cities, Oxymoron Utopia or Inevitability. So um, he says something really interesting. He says the argument that the words sustainable cities are an oxymoron seems obvious. Sustainability means that a unit used no more than it can replace. So I found this really interesting because we look at sustainable urban design and we see, you know, the green roofs, the living walls, that kind of thing, using gray water for our toilets. Um, but we are still impacting the surrounding areas. We're still impacting them. We're buying food, we're buying products that were not made directly in that area or in the city, right? Um, when it comes to design, the materials that are being used, they weren't made there either. So I thought that was a really important point to ask ourselves, is that possible? And to start thinking about ways to make it more possible that we're not being as intrusive and damaging to the environment around us. Um, so this is kind of where biomimicry ties in. Um, biomimicry is the design process that studies nature's biology. Essentially, this is just mimicking it. Um, one of my favorite kind of things with biomimicry that I remember actually from a relatively young age is wetsuits. So wetsuits, um, they were actually made based on shark skin. So a lot of people don't, you know, think about that kind of thing. Um, same goes for, for Velcro. Those were based off of uh, burrs. Um, a scientist took a microscope and looked at burrs and realized there was tiny hooks on the burrs and that's why they stuck to us. So I feel like it's these kind of things we have to think about when it comes to sustainable urban design. Um, so as, you know, scientists and engineers come together and more research is done, this is how we can implement these kinds of things with biomimicry. Yeah, and it's always, um... I think better to, you know, kind of, like you said, mimic what's already out there. Why reinvent the wheel if nature has been doing this for thousands and millions of years? Exactly. And let's do what works and we don't need to think of our own thing that's going to be a little bit more devastating. Exactly. Um, so can you kind of give us some examples of uh, sustainable design and biomimicry? Yeah, so some biomimicry projects that have been going on in the world, uh, there's a very popular project called the Eden Project. Um, I don't know if either of you have heard about this. It's uh, the largest greenhouse plant enclosure in the world. It's in the UK. Um, it kind of looks like bubbles. So it's a bunch of domes together. Um, these bubbles, uh, they have panels that are made from triple layer pillows. Um, these pillows maximum light and they're very lightweight. So uh, there's minimum structure due to low weight. Um, they're very thin. So that's one project. Um, the rail system in Tokyo is actually based off of slime. So they, so there's scientists in Tokyo that analyzed 
slime molds and noticed um, when they're going for food and their movements, it actually demonstrated the same thing as like a transportation system. So they watched the behavior of how it moved because I mean, it's nature, it knows what it's doing, right? So to improve transportation networks, they actually looked at that. Um, stick S lightweight structural systems. This is something I'm really interested in because of my background with civil engineering and um, wanting to build you know, massive buildings one day. Um, this stick S lightweight is actually based on the femur bone. So the femur bone is, it's, I guess the strongest bone, I don't know much about the human body, that's not my area of expertise, but apparently that's one of the strongest bones in the human body. Um, so they actually used this on some buildings. Uh, the building, so this is a hollow cylinder. So this design, it, it has maximum strength, but it's very lightweight. So that's something really important you wanna look at in design because you also have to consider the transportation, how you're getting it there, um, how much you can carry there, that kind of thing, in, in addition to actually building the building. So I thought that one was really cool. Um, so yeah, those are some examples of biomimicry, some buildings around the world or uh, transportation systems. Yes. I'll just jump in really quick. Um, I forget where I was, but I was traveling and I saw these like sticks and they were all like kind of really close to each other. And it was um, a way of collecting wind energy. So instead of having like wind turbines and the wind would blow, these sticks would kind of just like move with the wind and they were capturing the energy. And I was like, I think that was the first time I saw biomimicry like in real life, <laughs> you know, not just like seeing stuff on, um, you know, research and stuff. So I don't remember where that was. Do you guys, do you recall what I'm talking about? Anybody? No. Okay. I'll have to look at it, <laughs> but, oh, that's but yeah, really cool. we believe you, Jen. Sure. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, when you were, you don't always have to go with the traditional mindset of, you know, capturing, um, electricity with windmills, you can look at how, how nature just moves naturally. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, so, you know, obviously there's benefits to biomimicry in design and in buildings. Um, have you looked at the return on investment comparison to traditional construction and how do those numbers compare? Um, so I feel like for design, the thing about urban design is that I find right now, a lot of people are just jumping at solutions. They're just, they see all of these problems and they're like, okay, solution, solution, solution. However, the solution causes a new problem, right? So I feel like people really have to learn to design, you know, a long life cycle. And in the end, this is going to be, you know, more economical and it's going to be less intrusive to the environment. So, I mean, there are programs out there, like I, I know you've done a podcast on LEAD, which is Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. Um, for instance, you know, if you, if you take that design approach, yes, your investment's not only going to be higher economically rather than traditional construction, 
but it's going to be an investment in the environment like around you. So um, these kind of design processes, um, I would aim for a long life cycle. Um, it's like I said, it's less intrusive. So you have to think, you know, when I think of an engineering approach or how I'm going to design something, I'm also thinking about transportation, accessibility, um, how you're going to approach something like cutting down trees or something around that area. How you're, how are you going to do the construction? So for transportation, for instance, if you're optimizing your resources locally and in your area, long term, you're not going to be using as many carbon emissions because you're not bringing as much to the site. So these are like little things I feel like people need to think about more. Um, I know the construction industry, like it does get a bit bad rep and I've seen it. A lot of truck drivers will literally just bring one item, go all the way back to their shop. And most construction companies, they have their shops in not necessarily the country, but far out from the city because they need space for all of the trucks, their supplies, their equipment and everything. So this is a pretty long haul. And I, I've seen this happen so many times in construction where it's just like consuming emissions over and over again. It, it drives me insane watching it because as an environmentalist and also being in the construction industry, I get made fun of a lot, actually, because people are like, what are you doing here? You know, we're, we're using up so many em emissions, we're consuming everything. But I look at ways to optimize what's already there. So if I know that, you know, something has to be picked up at a different site, why have a driver go all the way back to the office, you know, sit for 10 minutes there and then go all the way to a different site? So that's a really big thing of, for me because I'm always thinking about emissions, um, the transportation and what it does to our air quality is it's brutal, you know? So if you can avoid that at all costs, I feel like you should. It's gonna be an investment on better air quality. It's going to save you money, which is more economical for your company. Um, so, yeah. I, I mean, those are some benefits to really looking at the design process as you go. Yeah. I, there's a lot of tools out there for doing life cycle cost analysis and return on investments. Um, there was something I saw about sustainable ROI. So it looks at all of the environmental factors, not just the black and white, you know, dollar to dollar comparison. So it talk it it, um, it takes into account things like emissions. And so there there are there are tools out there that engineers can use or architects can use to start looking at you know the impact of their building um, compared to traditional construction. But your original answer was you know pretty spot on. Um, we those who do lead buildings, uh, I'm a lead AP, so. You're always looking at um, what is the upfront cost, right? Because it's it's hard to get a building funded in the in the very beginning. You know, you have to have that capital, um, so you have to balance out sometimes, which they call value engineering. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So they'll cut out the solar panels because the upfront cost is just too high, 
And then they can come in a few years later and put them on at another time when the funding comes available. So um, there's just things, strategies like that that need to be evaluated. But but yes, the answer is doing these upfront investments in a more sustainable building will give you tenfold the benefits of having an energy efficient, sustainable building um, versus traditional construction. Right. Not only that, but I mean, um, investing in your employees as well. So when you have a building and it is, well, you want it to get it LEED certified. I mean, having good air quality, good acoustics, uh, daylight in your office building, it's going to invest in your employees. And there's actually a study, I, I don't know the exact statistics on this, but apparently people call in sick less per year based mm -hmm. on, you know, the money, but there's a lot of other aspects to look at it. And long-term, yes, that can lead to cost savings, such as, you know, employees not calling in sick or missing hours. Um, but like we said, investing employees in the building, um, cutting emissions by transportation, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's really important to look at long-term and not just upfront costs for sure. Yeah, and yeah, I think definitely. it's it's um, important to note, like Jen said, that sometimes when you look at the dollar amount it costs to construct something, it doesn't take the environmental cost into that. So if we started assigning a cost to the environment, like, you know, we should be, then you would see kind of a more even playing field, I think, when you consider right. how much damage this building does versus a sustainably built one. Yeah. And the largest bill companies have is their employees' salaries. So you want to invest in your people, like you mentioned, and making sure that they're happy and you don't have high turnover because that has an additional cost to retrain new employees. And so, like you mentioned, if um, there was a study, I think we talked about this on another show, but when you're in a room filled with plants and color and fresh and natural light compared to just a cubicle in the basement, like you are more productive as an individual worker when you're surrounded by nature and natural lighting and that's what lead and, you know, biomimicry and all these types of things can, can bring to your space. So uh, this kind of leads into my next question and we've, we've addressed some of this, but, you know, other than the environmental benefits, the benefits to your employees, et cetera, um, how, can sustainable development benefit the local economy and quality of life for residents? And this doesn't include just buildings, but just you know overall sustainably um, designed communities. Um, I've actually been working a lot. I mean, I am still in school right now. I'm finishing up my civil engineering degree in a couple weeks. But one of my courses called Advanced Environmental Engineering, we're looking a lot at water treatment and this is huge for cities and how it's going to benefit residents and whatnot. Um, I'm here in Ottawa and we just finished the CSST, which is the combined storage sewer tunnel. So this is like a huge thing because so many residents or business owners can, you know, get flooded basements or damage to their buildings or homes. 
um, drinking water even. So planning these kind of aspects and having a good water treatment process in place is going to benefit everyone around. Um, I think that's really important. Water treatment is a huge one because there's so many different chemicals out there now that's going into our water that's not being considered either. So I feel like that's huge in engineering right now because it's going to improve the quality of life for residents, business owners, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Is it, um, I guess this is a biomimicry design, um, speaking of water treatment, I mean, just using, planting more trees and grasses and, and plants that will filter the water, right? That cuts down on a lot of the cost of treating water through, you know, traditional means or chemicals or whatever. I mean, that's, that's one example, I guess, of using nature to help solve our problems. Definitely. I mean, sedimentation and erosion control is a huge one because those kind of things you want near the water, otherwise you're going to completely damage your water system. Yeah. I've seen some building designs where they put like a constructed wetlands on the inside of a building <laughs> and they use the gray water from the sinks or showers um, to, to keep it, you know, watered and everything. It, it was actually a really interesting design. Um, and people like being around plants, like it makes mm -hmm. them feel good and feel happy and it gives you fresh air. So so yeah, you can use all sorts of strategies to just keep the water you're using in your building within your building without having to put it directly into the sewer. Right. Especially if it's just stuff, you know, water for washing your hands. <laughs> mm -hmm. People are pretty creative when they have to be, right? Yes. Especially um, with rainwater. Like oh, I, yeah. I absolutely love the idea of green roofs, but I mean, like we were talking at the beginning about sustainable urban design, we're still being intrusive in that area by digging a hole to make the building, right? But it's such a huge improvement to have that greenery still be there in that, um, I guess, in that footprint where the building is, right? So optimizing your resources in order to stay sustainable with urban design is, it's huge. So are there any certifications that cities or organizations can get? I know we talked about LEED and there's the living building certification for, for buildings, but what about like larger entities? There's also the well standard. Um, and like we were talking like the well-being of employees. Um, so that's just basing, it's performance-based um, of your employees, like air quality and like we were talking about daylight, people love to be around plants, that kind of thing. Um, in relation to LEED, there's a Green Building Research Institute. Um, there's ecotourism, which I found really interesting that there's actually places like lodges and hostels that can get certified for being, I guess, eco-friendly in terms of tourism, which I thought is pretty neat. Um, with that, there's labels like they're called Green Key, Green Globe. Uh, there's STEP, which is Sustainable Tourism Education Program. So 
yeah, they base it on like their environmental management and their contribution to conservation. There's also, I did some reading up on sustainable Olympics. There's that as well. So different cities can, who host the Olympics, they can get awarded for how sustainable they keep the Olympics, essentially. So oh, I thought you have, were going to say like a, um, an Olympics where they have to do sustainable tasks and <laughs> hit it against each other. <laughs> but that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. So. And I think, I think city, like individual cities sometimes will have their own rating system for sustainable buildings. Like I know the city of Austin has their own certification program. So that's something that individual cities could look into as well. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, there's a lot of resources out there for communities and organizations that want to be more sustainable. They've just got to get committed to it, I guess. Yeah, I think like, it's a huge change of behavior that's going to make a difference. So I think it's adapting and adjusting these things so that, you know, we, we stay within that capacity and we're keeping things sustainable. Oh, like we dropped Jen for a second. Um, well, okay. So speaking of, you know, getting people in the mindset of doing these things, how can individuals encourage um, local businesses and cities to enact more sustainable design elements? In my opinion, so we always hear the three R's, um, reduce, refuse, recycle, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I, there's more than three R's. Um, in my opinion, I feel as though refusal is number one. Um, I say this because if you stop buying a product, a place is going to have to adjust that product to target their market, right? So if something's not green about their product and it's causing the refusal to buy that product, that's when they're going to have to change. Um, if people continue to buy the product, nothing's going to change. So I feel like it, it's the same thing with individuals, you know, driving every day to work. Um, as opposed to taking public transportation or riding their bike. I understand, and this is such a hard thing for me, in my industry, it's essential that I have to drive because I could go to maybe like six sites a day. So it, it's really frustrating for me um, because I, I like, you know, cycling everywhere or taking public transportation to lower my carbon footprint, for sure. So when it comes to, you know, cities looking at how they're going to lay out public transportation and whatnot, they're going to base it on how many people are taking public transportation in the first place, how many people are cycling to work, that kind of thing. So I feel like nothing will change unless we do first. So the refusal, if you have the ability to take your bike to work, as opposed to driving, I think that's, you know, it can make a huge difference. One person doing that times, you know, 20 people doing that times 60 people taking public transportation, it will make a difference and it will make cities act. Same goes for local businesses. If you're refusing to buy a product, 
because it doesn't fall into your environmental standards, they're going to have to change something about that product. Most likely it's packaging. That's a huge one for people. Um, everyone hates plastic packaging and whatnot, but companies aren't gonna come up with a new solution unless we stop buying it. So refusal, I think is number one for how individuals can encourage and change these types of things. Yeah, for sure. Using your buying power is a way of voting in a way, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought up biking to work. Um, we just got on to some climate change discussions with my job. And I was like, if people use mass transit, ride their bike or can walk to work, there should be an incentive program for those individuals to mm -hmm. make the other people who aren't doing that you know, encourage them to, to join. Um, so, you know, usually we can only give monetary awards with, that are kind of small, but, or you can give days off, which people tend to like more because everybody wants to have like an, a longer vacation. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that should be like an incentive enough for people that aren't currently doing these things to, to get on board. And um, that's something that employers should definitely consider. You could also look at... <laughs> Yeah, you could also see that with like parking. A lot of people complain about the price of parking once you go into a big city or whatnot, but that's just encouraging you not to drive in the first place, right? So yeah. the incentive is you don't have to pay for parking if you take your bike. <laughs> well, Jen, did you have any other questions for Brittany? Nope, I'm all set. Is there anything else you'd um, want to tell us about sustainable design or biomimicry before we talk more about Earth Hub? Um, I think that covered basically everything. So once you're done with your degree, what is your, you know, I guess, intended field or dream job that you're going to pursue? Well, my dream job... And I don't, I can't believe I'm about to reveal this to the world because it's my it's my huge secret. I want to build a bridge one day out of all reusable materials. So materials oh, cool. that have already been out there. I'm not producing anything new. Um, but what comes with that is you know structural integrity. So it would require tons and tons of research and what kind of materials you could use for that. Um, obviously safety is a massive concern when it comes to a bridge. Uh, but yeah, that would be my ultimate dream. Uh, but I feel like that's going to take a lot of, a lot of years. That's, that's so. great though. I mean, Hey, aim high. No pun intended. Yeah. Or pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, I think the statistic is like 95% of the steel that you can just buy is already been like recycled and repurposed. So you're starting out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. That does make you feel a, better. You have to get a replacement for all the concrete, I suppose. But I did just yeah. see they're starting to use compressed plastic for pavements and for building materials as well. So maybe we'll be melting down all of our plastic that we can no longer sell to China to turn into building materials <laughs> as a replacement for concrete. Who knows? Yeah. Well, speaking of concrete, um, you know, build, making concrete and pavement and stuff uses up a lot of, you know, carbon and releases a lot of greenhouse gases. But um, 
so that's its own issue. But I have heard that they're starting to find ways to inject carbon into the the concrete and make it stronger. And it's, you know, bringing the carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's a pretty cool development. And if we can continue doing things like that, then I think sustainable development will just keep, you know, being more impactful. Definitely. I I feel like I, I like the concrete option. I was actually talking to a master's student too. She's one of my TAs in my classes, but she's trying to find a way to basically take pieces of concrete and mesh them together somehow so that they can be reused um, instead of, you know, grinding it all down all over again to reproduce. Um, the issue I personally have with melting down plastic is that it's a solution, but I feel like it could cause a new problem. That's the, you know, that's the scary part of going with yeah <laughs> microplastics uh what could happen to our groundwater that kind of thing so I feel yeah. like you know There's scientists and, yeah exactly <laughs> I feel like scientists and engineers really need to look at you know future problems that mm-hmm. could arise from a new solution it's a great point there's also you know asphalt that is made of glass or, you know, pieces of glass that are melted down. There's all sorts of cool solutions out there, but yeah, we have to be cognizant of what problems could it cause down the road if we're mm-hmm. not careful. Mm-hmm. So um, we've kind of mentioned this a few times, but you are the founder of Earth Hub and tell us, you know, what that organization is, um, how it helps promote sustainable urban design, kind of give us the backstory. Okay, so um, like I said, I wanted to create a platform for people to, you know, learn eco-friendly tools, um, how they can be more environmental friendly. I really, really wanted a scientific background. I feel like there's tons of greenwashing going on um, in the world right now. For instance, something that's crazy to me is the electric car. So a lot of people, you know, they want electric cars. They, they're like, oh, I'm so green with this. But little do they know, like we brought up, it's causing a new problem. The lithium battery to dispose of it is actually worse on the environment than using fossil fuels in the first place. So, you know, it's things like that that people jump to conclusions about what's green and what isn't. So with EarthUp, that's what I really wanted to spread. Like I I want to have that scientific basis behind everything I kind of share. Um, A huge initiative with EarthUp, it actually started from prescription pill bottles. So I have a list of items I keep out of the landfill. So Earth Hub began from, yes, spreading environmental awareness and these annoying plastic pill bottles. The plastic pill bottles are number five rigid plastic. Um, I don't know how your curbside recycling is there, but here we, you know, we have our number system, but the number five plastic that we put in our blue bins here is like a yogurt container or a margarine container. So if you compare that plastic with a pill bottle container, which is a rigid plastic, the melting point's going to be different. So a lot of people don't consider that. Every city is different. 
And this is because they have different facilities that and different equipment that can melt down whatever plastics they're accepting. So a lot of people can aimlessly, you know, throw plastics in the blue bin, not knowing if it can actually be recycled in their city or not. I don't find, at least here in Canada, from my based on my research, I feel that a lot of recycling recycling facilities aren't that transparent. Um, so I started I started to look at recycling and analyze it, and I feel like the time, the labor, the emissions, the money, and the energy that goes in recycling actually outweighs what's being extracted from the material. It's very little being extracted, and then you're making something new um, using more emissions. So I feel as though the best approach is to reuse. Now, the pill bottles, the reason it became a huge thing is because sometimes, you know, these medications are unavoidable, right? I was bringing up refusal earlier. You could refuse to, you know, use mascara or drink milk from milk bags, that kind of thing. But when it comes to medication, people, you you need it. So that's why the pill bottles really took off. So that's one of the items we use, we reuse, sorry. We send them to Ohio to a disaster relief organization. So this is like our number one item to keep out of the landfill. I have 43 drop-off locations across Canada and two in the U.S. So there's a volunteer in each of these cities who actually ships them there on my behalf. But like we've discussed, every new solution comes with a new problem. Um, I'm shipping this, right? So that's increasing emissions. However, we have to outweigh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping these out of the landfill. At least they're being reused one more time as opposed to having this disaster relief organization produce a new pill bottle to use in these disaster situations. So that's how it all kind of started. And then next thing I knew, I, I was working at a restaurant at the time. Um, I have been in the service and in, uh, serving industry, sorry, for eight years as well, prior to my engineering discipline. Um, a lot of restaurants use crayons once, and then they throw them in the garbage because of germs with kids. So I started taking these crayons, I kept them out of the garbage, and then I melted them down again, and I donated them to a low income community center. So that was another item. And then I feel like you guys have uh, milk jugs. I know this is a, a funny thing between Canada and the States, but we have bagged milk. So the outside bag of the milk we use as um, milk bag mats for the homeless. So we donate them to an organization that actually uses that plastic and they make mats out of it. So the list just started expanding. So I, I feel like when people hear Earth Hub, that's what they think of, items to keep out of the landfill. So I'm in Ottawa. Um, our list has expanded massively here. I try to keep as many things as I can locally, obviously, because I don't want to be shipping items. I mean, I'm keeping them out of the landfill, but I don't want to be using up those emissions. So the only thing I ship out are the pill bottles and the mascara ones. 
the mascara wands I send to a wildlife refuge in North Carolina, and they reuse them on tiny animals as brushes. Um, we have egg cartons. We give those to local farmers or to food banks. This is how they distribute the eggs, obviously. Um, and then I have a Kingston chapter, which is just two hours west of Ottawa. So they've started a list there, and I have somebody there who's helping me with this. So I, I would say that's the basis of Earth Hub and then just me spreading environmental awareness. When it comes to sustainable design, I really do want to start sharing more information about this. However, like I said, I am still in, well, I'm finishing school, but once I'm more educated and I'm making and designing these buildings myself, that's when I really want to, you know, share that on Earth Hub. So. So I had to Google what these milk bags look like because when I visited <laughs> Canada, I did not see this. The The other person that's usually on the show, Chris, um, I visited her and her family and, and she managed to find glass milk containers. And I think they even took them back and like exchanged them. But yeah, I've never seen milk in a bag like that. So that's that's pretty interesting. And yeah, I could see how that's problematic, although I don't know what's worse, that or a giant plastic a giant jug. jug that we have. Um, right. well, I just have to commend you for all the work you've done because you have 43 locations, you said in two, two countries, Across that's a Canada, lot to coordinate. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so how do you manage to find people to, you know, do this for you? I mean, you said you even have a couple in the U S that collect and ship things. Yeah. So, um, how people get in touch with me, is it's typically by email to find out where can I drop off these pill bottles? Um, so Ottawa and Kingston, for instance, we have expanded the list, but every other drop-off location, it's only the pill bottles because that was the number one thing. Um, so they email me asking, where can I drop off these pill bottles? And if it's in a city that I don't have a volunteer yet, I kind of say to them, you know, yeah, I don't have a volunteer yet. Do you know any like-minded people who would like to help out? And that's honestly how I've been getting volunteers. A lot of people have been so supportive of what I do. I'm not registered as a nonprofit um, yet. I, I've been looking into that. But regardless, all of this money for operational costs and shipping costs have been completely straight out of my own pocket. So a lot of people are looking at this and they're like, wow, I, I want to help. I want to be a part of this. So I've recently, I actually just had my birthday last week. And I started a fundraiser for Earth Hub to help me with shipping costs. Because sometimes when I ship, yeah, it, I think I've spent maybe $800 so far on shipping. So a lot of people, yeah, they donated to my birthday fundraiser. And I'm about to ship uh, probably, I think, 2,000 pill bottles next week. So this will help me cover shipping costs. So people are really getting involved in my movement. And they want to join and help out. So in Ottawa, basically, it's it's a volunteer's home. Um, because of COVID right now, it's really hard to get businesses on board because no one wants to be, I guess, essentially collecting garbage, right, during this time. Um, so that's why I don't post the drop-off locations. I do it out of respect for my volunteers. I don't want to expose their addresses pub publicly. So that's why everything's done over email. Um, so basically a volunteer will put a bin outside their home. We call this the Earth Hub bin. 
it's out there 24 seven. And when people inquire about where can I drop off items, I email them that list. And then they can go to the drop off location whenever they want and bring their clean items. Yeah, I was going to ask, how are you funding this? Because it's expensive mm -hmm. to ship from Canada to the U.S. or vice versa. Yeah, it is. Honestly, I just out of my own pocket. Like, I just, I really care. I care that much. I cared that much about my pill bottles because I was on medications probably maybe like five years ago now. I was on quite a few medications and having these pill bottles, it really bothered me to the point that I was okay with spending the money to ship them I, I didn't want them in the landfill so yeah I was really excited when I looked at your your website and saw that you were collecting pill bottles because I have been refusing to throw pill bottles away for about two years because I'm like somebody will use these I will yeah. find a way to you know recycle or donate them um, and I probably have like 50 in a couple boxes that I'm just waiting for the right opportunities. So now that I know, you know, you have a place to send them, mm -hmm. um, I'll have to, to look into that and, you know, maybe even see if, if somebody down here would like to start um, a collection site and, you know, send it, send it through that as well. Um, it sounds like a really great organization. Um, so if folks do want to get involved or learn more, where can they do that? Um, so basically by email, that's how people can reach me. I do all the coordination I have, I have more people helping me out with emailing drop-off locations in the Ottawa chapter and the Kingston chapter. Ideally, I would love to have basically a me in every city to kind of take that over so I have time for research um, to spread more environmental awareness. But yeah, usually by emails, how people can reach me and I, I have a manual and everything on how to get started. So what's that email? Info at earthhub.ca. Okay. So if you're listening and you want to get involved, maybe start your own chapter or just figure out where you can start sending stuff, even um, get in touch with Brittany and you can start sending your hard to recycle items um, to places that can use them. I also highly recommend TerraCycle. I don't know if you have that in Canada, but um, they collect weird things that you can't recycle typically. And a lot of times that's funded by the companies that um, produce the items. So you would think yeah. they would just not produce the items to begin with. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we collect um, three different items for TerraCycle, actually. I'm partnered up with another group in Ottawa. They're called the Eco West Enders. And they actually, they collect chip bags and like the squeezy juice pouches or snack pouches um, for like babies or little kids. I, I don't, I don't know how to describe them or what their actual like name is or something. Yeah. So those, so basically what she does is she has that TerraCycle program at her kid's school. And I guess they get points for their school for fundraising type thing. Mm -hmm. So we do collect those for the Eco West Enders too with TerraCycle. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, are there any other resources you would share with our listeners um, to learn more about urban design, biomimicry, or anything else we've talked about? Um, I would honestly say proper research research is essential. I'm just so worried about greenwashing. 
I feel like it's better to band together. There's so many Facebook groups in every city, like I just said, like the Eco West Enders in Ottawa. It's just, you know, sharing ideas with like-minded people or, you know, finding out what other people know about being eco-friendly or what resources they use, what products they use, that kind of thing. So it's really good to network with other people, I find, who who have similar goals for sustainability. For sure. Yeah, there's the internet, you know, gives us an endless range of information and possibilities to connect with folks. So, Um, well, I guess with that, we will move on to our green life hacks. And this is where we share a product or, um, you know, action that we can share with listeners to help them live more sustainably. Um, So Brittany, would you like to start us out? Yeah, so my green hack is deodorant. Um, I just started making my own. Um, I mean, natural deodorants at my zero waste store, they're $18, which is, I I mean, that's the that's the downfall that that eco products get is their cost, right? But like we were saying earlier, it's the future investment, like a metal razor, for instance, right? I I love my metal razor. Mm -hmm. You're never going to have to buy a plastic razor again. When it came to the deodorant, yes, I really wanted eco-friendly deodorant. It comes in a compostable casing, but I found it really expensive. So it's eighteen dollars, and it I never actually, works. <laughs> it like it like kind of sweats work. off you. Yeah, they never work. <laughs> it's like I spent all this money and I'm never going to use it. <laughs> yeah. So I whipped together my own deodorant, and I actually I had it in in a container like this. So that's a that's a pretty big container. I feel like it's gonna last me a year. That's like so a that's um, like a jar of sauce a jar, jar or something. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, um VH sauce. It's one of these jars. <laughs> yeah. So I I honestly feel like that deodorant's gonna it's gonna last forever. So I don't What's know. It I mean um I put shea butter, uh tapioca starch, baking soda, essential oil. I believe I use eucalyptus was the flavor I use. Um, I forget what I'm missing. Probably an oil of some sort. Um, I'll put the recipe on my website for sure. But that's definitely like one of the best green hacks I've done recently. Cool. Maybe I'll give that a try since I can't (laughs) seem to find one that works. (laughs) Jen, do you have a green life hack for us? Um, mine would just be to encourage people to walk and bike more. So if you're close enough to work, you know, just bite the bullet and start doing it (laughs) or mass transit. Try it once a, once a week. (laughs) People have to get their steps in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, mine is, um, one of these makeup reusable makeup removing cloths so people probably look at it and say well it's just a rag like what's the difference but these are more like microfiber they don't like you know how terry cloth can kind of like scratch you because it's so thick and stuff Um, these are very soft and fine Um, this one that I have says that you can use it with water only but I usually use some kind of cream or soap or something Um, and, and I use it on like my eye makeup I don't wear a ton of makeup but 
Um, it's nice to not have to use the wipes or cotton pads or whatever. Um, it's reusable. You can clean it. And I have, you know, I use them until they're completely like every inch is covered with, you know, grime or whatever. And then I'll sit there and I'll, I'll clean it with a brush and it comes out like really easily. So I highly recommend those if you're looking for, you know, a reusable solution to your um, makeup cleaning. What's um, that brand called? Well, this one is just the Vintage Cosmetic Company. A friend gave them to me, um, but they make all sorts of them. I've, I've seen uh, different brands and stuff. Um, so I would say, yeah, do your research, like you mentioned, and find one mm -hmm. that's it's highly recommended. But um, yeah, that's my green life hack. And um, anything else you guys want to share before we close out? Well, I think we covered a lot. We did. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, Brittany, tell us where we can find you online and feel free to promote Earth Hub and all of your whatever sites you're comfortable sharing. So I have a huge Facebook following. That's where you can find a lot of my weekly posts and whatnot. So the, the name is obviously Earth Up. And then we have an Instagram page as well. It's at underscore Earth Up. And then earthup.ca is my website. A lot of people mistaken the name as two words, Earth Hub, but I meshed it all together. So it's Earth Hub with one H. So, yeah, I was going to ask, can you spell that for folks so they know how to, how to look for you? <laughs> yeah, so, so it's clarifying. Yeah, just one H. <laughs> okay. Um, Jen, I take it we are still your exclusive uh, online presence, correct? Yes, ma'am. All right. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. And of course, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sustainably Geeky. Um, we are also on all of the podcast sites, um, and we have recently been added to Audible and Pandora. So if you listen on those sites, definitely check us out. Um, wherever you listen, please subscribe, rate us, share us with your friends. We appreciate your support. Um, thank you again for um, sharing, you know, the, this idea to have Brittany on. And, and if you guys ever have any other suggestions, feel free to reach out to us um, via social media um, or, you know, if you know me, let me know. Uh, thank you again, Brittany, for being on and um, continue, you know, doing all this great work. We're excited to see what Earth Hub does next. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, y'all have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 